Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, thank you this morning. We pray, Father, that you would send fire, that you would come in your power, in your life, like a wind and blow across us. We pray, Lord, that you would fill your word, that our hearts might engage it. We pray, Lord, that you might show us who Jesus is and show us who we are. Lord, come now and make yourself known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing in our His Story series. If you're just joining us or you've been away for a while, we were working our way through the fall, kind of hitting the high level of the Old Testament. We're hitting the big themes, looking at how God is involved in history and to the current day. We're moving towards Christmas with the coming of Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, Kendall took you into the life of King David. We saw the first of the really good kings show up, the one chosen by God with a heart like God's own heart. God promised David that that he would always have an heir, and that heir would be king forever. There's this everlasting promise, a kingship that goes on. Well, David eventually died, and his son Solomon was raised up. Solomon created and built the temple of God, the worship of God located in Jerusalem. The sacrificial system became the heart of the people. It was intended to be the place where sacrifice, worship, and the life of the people was truly found. After Solomon, I'm just bringing you up to speed so you know where we are. We're taking these big leaps in history. After Solomon died, it wasn't long before the kingdom was split. It was split into two kingdoms so that you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was in Samaria. And, well, the northern kingdom had basically ten tribes associated with it. The southern kingdom was around Jerusalem, around the place of worship. It had two tribes. So when you read in Scripture, the kingdom of Israel, that's the northern kingdom. When you read about the kingdom of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. These two kingdoms didn't last all that long. The northern kingdom, about 200 years until the Assyrians came, and the Assyrians vanquished the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasted about 350 years, 400 years total, when the Babylonians came and destroyed it and the people were sent into, into exile. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Right now we're in the prophets. We're not going to get to all of them. We're just going to hit a couple and we're going to see what prophets are all about and what this kingdom period has to say to us. Now, in the kingdom period, there are a lot of kings. Some of them are good, but most of them are bad. Yeah, the other option, right? A few are mediocre, but there's not a whole lot of wiggle room. They're either good or bad. The good kings tending to lead people to the Lord, to stay faithful to Yahweh. The bad kings going in other directions and leading the people with them away from the Lord. Now, in the midst of all these kings, you have prophets. And the prophets always called people's hearts back to God. Everybody say, hearts back to God. If you want to surmise all those books of the prophets, it's hearts back to God, hearts back to God, hearts back to God. That's what the prophets did, calling people back to right worship and a right allegiance and a solidarity with the living God. That's 
the message of the prophets. Now today, in that lesson, that long lesson we had, and I know the lessons are long, but we're trying to get in it's like solid chunks of meat in this series, if you will. We've got King Ahab. King Ahab is one of the bad kings. In fact, he might be one of the worst of the kings. This is what the scripture says about Ahab. Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than did all the kings of Israel before him. The only one worse than him was his wife Jezebel, who talked him into killing all the prophets of God. And so they're a bad couple. This is a power couple, and they are not good. They are evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is what the Bible says. Ahab served and worshipped Baal. In fact, he erected an altar in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Everybody say Samaria. Samaria. That's important to remember. So northern kingdom, Samaria, they're worshipping Baal. They've erected a temple Now, the scripture makes clear that the choice that he made to worship other gods is what put him at odds with Yahweh, what put him at odds with the living God. And that is the story of the world. People worshiping other gods than Yahweh, than the living and true God, the one God Almighty. Now, as happens, often in the worship times, this is all preliminary. We'll get to the sermon in a minute. Right? But you've got to lay the stage because a lot of us don't have a great understanding of the biblical narrative and framework. As, as often happens in bad times, really good things happen because of God. And so in the midst of this bad time with Ahab and Jezebel and a lot of prophets getting killed, God raises up Elijah. And he is one of the mighty prophets that has ever lived. In fact, he is of the probably top two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. Do you remember where they show up in the New Testament? The Mount of Transfiguration. We're going to come back to that. Just keep that in the background. Now the prophets come to turn people's hearts to God. That's what they do. Turn hearts to God. Everybody say, turn hearts to God. Turn hearts to God. That'll be important to remember. Turn hearts to God. Now here's our last bit of backstory, and then we'll get into the text. There were a lot of Baals, false gods, that were worshipped at various times. Ashtra is another one, but, but really the term Baal was used to kind of wind them all up into one. There were lots of Baals, lots of different gods. The one that Ahab was most associated with was with the storm god. Now think about what a storm god does. Storm god has power, can send lightning, a storm god provides rain, Rain in an agricultural community provides prosperity and goodness. This is a God of prosperity that Ahab worships. That's very important to recognize. Ahab's all about prosperity. He's all about affluence. He's all about having much. He's all about power. And God sends Elijah and tells Ahab, there's going to be a drought for three years. There will be no rain until I say so. That's the big setup for what we get to today. There will be no rain. Now, what's amazing is the northern kingdom, and and if you've not been there, the northern kingdom, Samaria, that northern part of Israel is very lush. It's the farming and agricultural region in Israel. The southern kingdom, very hot and deserty. And so to not have rain 
in the northern kingdom, because God has called a drought, means the entire region is dealing with famine, they're dealing with pandemic, they're dealing with adversity at a national level. That's what is happening in the midst of where our text comes in. God says to Elijah, go to Ahab, because I'm about to send rain. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There's a showdown that's about to happen. This is like the gunfight at the OK Corral. This is going to be like Luke against Darth Vader. This is going to be like Rocky Balboa against Ivan Drago, right? The USA against Russia, right? The American hockey team against, I mean, this is right. Think of showdowns. That's what is going on right here. All of Israel is called to be a part of it. There are thousands of people gathering around Mount Carmel, spectators to see the battle is about their hearts. The battle is about their hearts. Now, lest we think that those are primitive people worshiping small gods and little idols and that they were different than us, they are no different than us. The battle throughout all of history has been for the hearts of people. This is always the battle that goes on. This is always what's happening. There is a battle for hearts. They ask the same kind of questions that we ask. Is God real? Is God good? Does God care? Will God provide? Can he be trusted? Will God listen? Will God do something about the situation of my life? These are all heart questions. These are all questions we ask. These are all questions they asked. And they all have to do with hope. And they all have to do with allegiance. They all have to do with what we will trust in and where our security will be found. What's happening on Mount Carmel is happening in your heart and in my heart. Every single day there is a battle for our allegiance. There is a battle for your heart and mine going on. Who's really God? Verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. How long will you limp between two opinions? How long will you waver? How long will you flit back and forth, hopping between one thing and the next? There's a picture in the Hebrew for what's going on there. It's a picture of a bird that's hopping between limbs. And we've all seen them. Think of a little sparrow or something that hops from one limb to the next. You know what I'm, right? That's what this word is signaling. How long are you going to waver between opinions? How long are you going to dance back and forth? How long are you going to hop around? Now, here's the thing about the Israelites. They were not atheists. Most people are not atheists. In fact, today, there are not that many atheists. Gallup did a poll not too long ago, and he does it every few years, the Gallup organization. Nine out of ten Americans say they believe in God. Nine out of ten. That's a lot of people. 
There are a few who would say they're atheists, but most people are not atheists. They believe in God, some kind of God, some kind of way. And that's what these folks were like. They're not atheists, but what they were is that they were practical polytheists. Now, that sounds like big language, big theological language. But but what it meant is that they wanted God, but they also wanted to coexist with some of the other gods of the world. They wanted the things that God could offer, but they also were hedging their bets just in case. They wanted the Lord, and they wanted what he could give. And yet, the things in the world around them were awfully enticing. And what happened was that their allegiance would go to these things. Baal promises prosperity. Baal promises rain. Baal promises your crops are going to grow and you're going to have plenty. In fact, you're not just going to have plenty. You're going to have plenty for your kids and your grandkids. You're going to have an inheritance that you can send on to others. You're going to have the power to do anything you want because you have flexibility and you have finances. Does this sound familiar? That's what Baal promised. That's what the gods of our age promised too. If you just have enough money in the bank, if your investments will just do well enough, if you'll just work hard enough, if you just save enough, then you're going to be able to have all the good things that this life promises. They believed in God, but they also wanted the things that the world would promise and that the Baals promised. It's not that they didn't have faith. It's just that they had faith plus a little bit more. Faith plus. They're functionally putting their faith in multiple things. They wanted God, but they had other allegiances. They had other places where they put their hearts and their love and their commitment and their trust. And we still do the same thing today. Well, we don't have little stone gods, but we sure do the exact same thing. Here's how you'll know. And you've probably seen these folks. You might even be one of these folks. You go to church on Sunday. You're all for Jesus. You say the creed. I'm all in. And then Monday comes, and your commitment is actually to the God of business, the God of career, the God of finances. How do you know? Because all your time is there. All your focus is there. All your energy is there. All your hope is there. How can you be assured that you're doing it? Because your family falls by the wayside. Because your time with God, your scripture reading, well, I'll do it in the car, and I'll listen to it on the way. You look at the things that your heart is committed to, and then you see what you are really aligned and worshiping. People do this all the time. Monday comes and Sunday's forgotten. Most of our children, most of the families, even in this church, even in the world around us, are following the God of achievement. Yes to Jesus on Sunday, but then you watch the way life plays out. And all the time and all the commitment and all the energy is to having the best resume and the best grades so they can get into the best college, so they can have the best life, just like we are committed to. You can see where your alignment and your allegiance truly is. How about the God of sports, the God of football? Jesus on Sunday until Friday comes around and then Saturday and we're for church unless church invades our football schedule and then we're for football. And how do you know? Because that's where the time is and that's where the money is and that's where the joy is and that's where the heart really soars. And of course we're for church unless it gets in the way of our children's sports and our travel teams. 
you'll know where your heart is really aligned by the way you put your time, by the way you put your investment, by the place where your allegiance is. And what we do is we just cover it over and we say, Chris, you're just being too hard. Oh, God's too much. You you need to water this down a little bit. No, that is not the message of the prophets. That is not the message of the Bible. That is not what's happening here today. That is not what's happening in your heart and mind. There is a battle going on for your heart and your allegiance between God and every other rival God that exists. The same then is the same now. Pay attention. Pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your allegiances because it'll show you what's really winning out in your lives. We are functionally polytheists. We hop between the options. God's good, but so is business and achievement and finance and entertainment, and you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. Why do we do the dance between God and so many other things? Do you remember a few weeks ago, Kendall took us through the Ten Commandments. The first commandment begins with, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. There's a reason that's number one, because everything else flows from that. You shall not worship idols. You shall not worship other gods because I am a jealous God. Jealous for what? Jealous for your heart. Jealous for your worship. Not in an evil and vindictive way, but because he knows that in worshiping him, you will have life. But in worshiping anything else, you will come up empty. It will promise much and give little, certainly in the long run. This is the theme of the Bible. This is the theme of your life. This is the theme of every person who has ever lived. God is to be exclusively worshiped, but lots of other things compete for your allegiance. Now, what's happening in Elijah's story in this showdown that God is saying as he sends a drought to thwart the storm God, there's no difference between what Elijah's going about and talking about and what Jesus has to say that Laura read for us in the gospel. You can't serve two masters. You're going to be devoted to one or you're going to serve the other. So so this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a Bible thing. This is a Jesus thing. It's why we start our service by saying, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the number one thing that we are called to. We'll go back to the text. Verse 22, Elijah says to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, amen. Good idea. Well spoken. Now think about the context. Three years of drought. Finances are hurting. Their investments are on the rocks. You know people are committing suicide along the way because everything that they put their hope in is failing. And they're thirsty, and their kids are thirsty, and their grandchildren are thirsty, and their crops are thirsty. And so they're desperate at this point. And Elijah says, the God who communicates and shows himself through fire, that's the real God. That ought to ring some bells for you if you've been around in this series. Because we have seen fire all the way throughout, the presence of God coming in fire. You remember? Abraham's covenant with God. God passes like a flaming torch through the sacrifice. 
We get to Moses, and we didn't do his story. Moses, God reveals himself through the burning bush. And then, of course, God comes with fire and leads them through the desert, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. At Sinai, fire falls. Fire is a big theme, and that goes all the way through into the New Testament. That's the story of Pentecost. God will show himself through fire. Verse 26, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it. Sorry, 25, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar. It's the same word that was used for the people. How long will you limp between two opinions? God is God, serve him. But if Baal is Baal, serve him. They're limping around. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing or he is relieving himself. You you understand how earthy that is, right? (laughs) Maybe your God is on the commode. That's what he's saying. Maybe he's on a journey, right? He's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep and you need to wake him up. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. They're praying, but there's no fire. They're dancing, but there's no fire. They're crying out. They're cutting themselves. They're bleeding for what they really believe in. Some of you are working yourselves bloody. Some of you are being driven, maybe not literally bloody, but you're bleeding all over the place for what your hearts are aligned to. Pay attention. This is so important. There's a lot on the line here. Baal's always going to let you down. Doesn't matter how much he promises. He will always let you down. There is no fire in the false god. Verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. The people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood he said, do it a second time. Then he said, do it a third time. And water ran all over the altar. Elijah sets up a scenario that is impossible unless God shows up. Have you heard this theme in the last few weeks? Scenarios in which if God doesn't show up, it's a total wreck and a disaster. This is God's pattern. Impossible things. And God revealing himself in the midst of them. That's his pattern. Think about it. Abraham is too old to have kids, and so is Sarah, and yet God gives him a child. Joseph is sold into slavery, and yet he ends up being the one who saves his people. Think about David last week. David is the runt of the litter, and yet he becomes the king. 
Think about the Red Sea. Impossible, and yet God leads them through the Red Sea. Think about Jericho. It made no sense to march around the walls doing nothing and then to shout. And that's the battle plan. But this is how God works. He does his best work when you have nothing in your life but a wet pile of wood and no matches. Now, I do a lot of camping, and it's possible to make fire with no matches. You can do it using friction. But you cannot make fire with wet wood and no matches. And those are the kind of scenarios that often work out in our lives so that we will see who the true God is. Now, think about your own life. There are places that are going on where it feels like all you got is wet wood and no matches. The bills are too high for your business. The addiction has got you by the throat. Your child has run off, and it looks impossible for them to come back to God. And yet he can show up. But it sure looks like he will not do it. But he does his best work in these kinds of situations. This is where he shows up. Your relationship is failing. You're finding yourself deep in depression, deep in darkness, deep in a mess. And that's where God can show himself to be the true God. It might seem impossible. Can God really light a fire in my life with wet wood and no matches? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. That's what prophets do. They seek to turn the hearts of God, of God's people, back to him. And what does he do? He prays. He doesn't come up with a strategy. He doesn't make his pros and cons list. He doesn't figure it all out. He prays. There's a lesson in that. When your life looks like a pile of wet wood and no matches, stop trying to fix it and pray. And sometimes the fire will fall fast, and other times it will take seven times, seven weeks, maybe seven years before the fire of God falls. What would it be like if the people of Holy Cross were first a people of prayer? What would happen on this island and the next island and Mount Pleasant in this region? Yes! That's what would happen. Our hearts would change. Our lives would change. The people around us would see the fire fall. We would see miracles. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Yahweh Elohim. He is Lord of all. They are prostrate on their faces before God like this, is so unbecoming. But they can't do anything else 
but then to lay themselves before God and cry out, You are the Lord. Holy are You. Yahweh Elohim, King of kings, Lord of lords. The best thing a few of us might do is not to literally lay on our faces, but literally get down in the dirt before God. Get down on the dirt before the Lord. It's so unbecoming. It's, it's, oh, it's too much. No. The pride that so many of us carry is such that it needs to be broken in humility before God. He wants you and I to know that Baal can't send fire. He can't send fire, but Yahweh Elohim can. Verse 40, and Elijah said to them, seize the the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And then verse 41, we didn't put it in. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for the sound is of rushing rain. Now the rain is coming because the fire has fallen. Now here's the thing. We were talking about this in staff a few weeks ago. And they're like, Chris, like there's a lot of death going on in these stories. Have you noticed that? Like that's why people don't like the Old Testament. But we're missing the point. This is life and death stuff. Those who lead people away from God, these prophets of Baal, were doing a great damage. They were leading people away from life to death itself. It's disturbing, but we have to get out of this little picture and realize the consequences of false allegiances are drastic. The consequences of our hearts being committed to other things is severe. That's why this stuff is so hard and unpalatable to us, because our God is comfort, and our God is niceness, and our God is control. Yes, I want Jesus, but I don't like this messy Old Testament stuff. Then you don't want the true God. The significance is strong. The stakes are high. Now, here's the thing. You're like, where's the gospel, please? (laughs) This is the gospel. But remember how I told you to to remember about the transfiguration? You remember I said that at the beginning? Jesus, after he said to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Oh, you know, some say you're John, or some say you're one of the prophets, but who do you say I am? Oh, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the king. That's a theme, right? And then he takes them up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He is changed before them. His clothes look like lightning, they look like fire. And then do you remember who shows up? Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking to Jesus. And what are they talking to him about? They're talking to him about his departure. What does that mean? They're talking to him about the fact that he's about to go to the cross. And from that point, 
Jesus comes down off the mountain and they start to move toward Jerusalem, towards the cross. And along the way, he sends his disciples ahead of him into the towns of Samaria, the northern kingdom, so that they might announce that the king has arrived and they reject the king. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. James and John, who are up on that mountain with Jesus, say to him, should we call down fire upon them? They've got in mind Elijah and Mount Carmel and this whole story we're looking at. They've rejected you. Should we call down fire and destroy them? And Jesus rebukes them. And he says, you don't get it. Because I have not come to call the fire down upon the people. I have come to let the fire fall on me. In the story of Elijah and the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, Jesus is not Elijah, he's the sacrifice. He's the one upon whom the fire falls. He's the one who takes upon himself the fire of God, the judgment of God, the penalty of God. For what? For hearts that are divided and seeking other things. That's the gospel. And that's what this story is pointing to. Jesus says, I didn't come down to rain judgment upon you. I came that the judgment might rain upon me. I didn't walk up Calvary, that mountain, so that anybody other than I would have the judgment of God. Think about what the prophets of Baal require. That Baal requires of his prophets that they would bleed for him. But what did Jesus do? He bled for us. He bled for you. He bled that you could be free. He bled so that no judgment would be on you. If that doesn't begin to wreck your heart, if that doesn't begin to allow you to see the depth of what God thinks of you, then your ears are stopped and your eyes are shut and your heart is hard and you're in a desperate place. So what do we do with this? Well, I I would suggest we get honest. The difference between those guys back then and us now is at least they were honest about their divided hearts. We tend to cover it over. They named their false gods. We tend to make it look pretty and good and say, but everybody's doing it. Fall on your face. Give thanks for the fire that's fallen upon the one who's come for you. Ask him to give you a new heart, not a divided heart. Ask him to give you a fresh heart, not a stuffy heart. Ask him to give you a full heart, not a religious heart. He gives new hearts. The fire can still fall. It just falls in your heart. But what does it fall for? So that you might have power. So that you might have life. Can you name the false gods in your life? Where your allegiance lies where your loyalties fall, 
the things that you've been tempted to really be committed to, Jesus will receive those. But you got to give them to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be people who fall on our knees and cry out, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, he is God. Jesus is Lord of all. We thank you, Lord, that you are the sacrifice. You are the altar. You are the one upon whom the fire fell, that it need not fall upon us. Turn our hearts back to you, Lord. Give us new hearts, clean hearts, full hearts, that we might worship you in the beauty of holiness. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen.